0: and welcome to this special pelvic health edition of the Pilates 101 podcast. My name is Emily and I will be your host for this takeover episode. For those I haven't met before, I am one of the pelvic health master trainers and you will find me delivering the anti and postnatal course, doing IG lives for all things pelvic health and movement and delivering my favorite course, the Pilates for endometriosis. I am a I'm especially excited to be hosting today's episode as we are honored to be joined by a master in pelvic health, Grania Donnelly. Grania has gained huge respect in our field through her research in real-time ultrasound for diastasis, return to exercise postnatally, and she's also the author of multiple online courses, including Diastasis Revolution, The Athletic Female, the perinatal athlete and the full evolution course, which I can personally vouch is one of the most comprehensive and quality resources on pelvic health for athletes. Grania also presents on Introduction to Ultrasound in Pelvic Health, is the principal physio and founder of Absolute Physio. She is the host alongside Emma Brockwell of the brilliant At Your Cervic podcast, which busts myths, empowers, and educates both professionals and the public about pelvic health. Grania, in her spare time, what she has of it, um, also is the editor and chair of the journal subcommittee for the PAGP. She is a mum to four, so she has a wealth of academic, clinical and personal experience in this field. Rania, welcome and thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here and um, yeah, thank you for that wonderful introduction. I'm blown away by it.
0: <laughs> yeah I had a lot of fun reading and uh, kind of piecing all the things I did. and yeah it's a it's a long list you definitely have covered so much things and I know that the listeners are gonna get so much from today so I'm gonna I'm gonna jump straight in um and I think particularly just you know as I was researching and looking at all the details around everything that you do I think the the things that jumped out to me is that your work is just so distinctive in the pelvic health field but I'd I'd love to hear um about your journey into this I know for many of our listeners your input to pelvic health has been really inspiring and influential so how did you follow the thread to where you are now?
1: Oh that's a really interesting question and it's one it's not really a straightforward answer in the sense that I never planned to be a pelvic health physio when I came out of uni I probably didn't really know that pelvic health physiotherapy really existed until we covered a very very small module at uni Um, but I ended up um, rotating around as a basic grade physiotherapist in the Belfast Trust in Northern in Ireland and of course one of the rotations I got sent to was maternity hospital now I actually tried to swap out of this but no one would swap with me because I didn't think that I wanted to go to the maternity hospital I thought I wanted to be the next sports physiotherapist and I end up going and actually that's where the journey began because I loved it. it to me female health and well-being in particular was something that really drew me and I felt it was sports medicine and musculoskeletal physiotherapy but just for an area that we usually skip past so I became really really interested in it enjoyed that rotation and I have to say it was the physios in that rotation that really inspired me because you see how other people work and you kind of want To work in a similar way to them. So, thank you to the people in Belfast Trust. Um, So, I came out and got my first pelvic health post back in my hometown and then I developed into the team lead position there in the NHS and how I ended up doing bits of clinical practice and research is quite unique as well again unplanned I became a little bit frustrated with the fact that we didn't have any guidelines or information particularly for return to exercise after women had a baby and I couldn't understand this because as a physiotherapist or as rehab professionals as I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be we know that for uh, knee surgery or any sort of um, musculoskeletal muscular sports uh, surgery around the body, we will have a guideline to, I suppose, tell us and inform us how to progress back into the sport someone likes to do. And this just seemed to be absent after women go through one of the biggest endurance events of their lives. So we put together a white paper on returning to running personally, that was Emma Brockwell and Tom Goom and I, they're both physiotherapists from England, and it went viral, there was such a hunger for it, it was really just us trying to do a review of the evidence and literature and try to propose the starting base for guidance. And when we were presenting these at different scientific conferences, We put a call out to the crowd, to the researchers who were listening to us to say, can you please focus on women, first of all, and particularly postpartum women and get some research to guide us. And I never at that time thought that I'd be part of the answer to that call, but it just kind of fell that way that one of the researchers in the crowd ended up contacting Emma and I and asking us to help inform the research study. And since then, I kind of sometimes feel like I'm a little bit like Forrest Gump, (laughs) who started running and kept going. I started a little bit of research kind of liked it so I just kept going and I just hope that, <laughs> I hope that one day I don't wake up with an abrupt stop <laughs> where I decide I'm, I'm done now. <laughs> oh,
0: amazing and I think that's you know this is the you know for a lot of people who aren't in the academic field who aren't involved in research research can feel like this big intimidating you know very sort of intellectual aspect but it's just what You were saying it was, it was just a question. It was a, it was a gap. It was a. why isn't It was an inquisitiveness of going well why isn't it and we need this and and I can definitely resonate I'm sure lots of other people who've gone into pelvic health will you know getting sent off into you know the kind of (laughs) the niche area and being sent there and then suddenly realize how much um how much depth there is to it literally on the school run this morning I've just dropped off my youngest and I was walking with another mum back and we had a bit of a chat about what we were doing and I said oh I'm Filming and um, recording a podcast, and expert about pelvic health and who you were, and she was just just saying about how much pelvic health has changed. You know, pelvic health physiotherapy has changed her life, and like that's just you know that's incredible to hear. And I think that's anybody who is who is either trying to learn more or it's you know trying to experience more in pelvic health. Just you know, I I'd encourage you to like listen to Grania's there. She just had a question. She just was inquisitive, and she went exploring and followed the thread so yeah that's it's
1: mad though because I guess part of the problem as to why I initially didn't think I wanted to be a pelvic health physio was because pelvic health physios typically work in a room on their own and Mm -hmm. so there's a closed room and you don't overhear conversations the way you do in a musculoskeletal outpatient gym you might see people doing rehab in the gym or overhear, you know, aspects of conversation behind curtains. And so it's so secretive um, that therefore people don't know what happens. So when you don't know what happens, you don't really aspire to want to be in that zone. Um, so podcasts like this are really, really important too because they highlight topics that people don't really discuss. But mm-hmm. the other thing I want to mention was if anyone is kind of like, oh, I've always wanted to do research, but it's so intimidating, or I'm not a researcher because I wasn't a researcher and I wouldn't have identified as one, and I, I would have thought research would be too hard or it wasn't I wasn't the person to do it. We have a feature in the Journal of Pelvic Obstetric and Gynaecological Physio trying to uh, bridge the gap between clinical practice and research, and it, it's discussing the basics. Six of it. So one of the papers is about how to read a research paper, how to critique it, and the next one is about the difference between quantitative and qualitative. So we're breaking it down into bite-sized chunks, and we try to make those features open access um, on the website so that people can get an idea of them so if anyone is interested no matter what background you come from you might find these pieces interesting
0: amazing and that website it's changed slightly hasn't it? is it the pogp now the, like that. yeah
1: you're right it's www.thepogp.co.uk
0: amazing so head there if you want to start learning a little bit more about how to understand research but get into it because yeah it's for everybody absolutely amazing so we have a mixture of Clinicians, therapists, and pilates instructors and in our community, and we're all varying points in our learning about diastasis. And I think I cannot waste this opportunity of having you here and not I'll get this question in. So, can you give us a current perspective and definition of diastasis? as where the evidence is now pointing to our approach to the diagnosis and the management of diastasis?
1: Great question, and one which I have seen, thankfully, develop over the years, because when I got interested in diastasis at the beginning, it was quite early in my career, but there was nothing. If you Googled and there was very little out there, um, I would sometimes call it diastasis, diastasis. Um, It really refers to a thinning and widening of the linea alba, which is the connective tissue that, I suppose, is between the two bodies of the rectus abdominis muscle, and that's the muscles that we tend to think of as our six-pack muscles, the six-pack definition. So it's that ridge um, in between them that is joined by, as I said, connective tissue, and it's meant to thin and wide during pregnancy and other um, situations, so if we have a lot of wind, um, if we have some sort of um, medical situations where our abdom- abdominal wall is going to expand, that's a really clever anatomical design. And it's really only an issue if it excessively widens and it doesn't regress back, I suppose, afterwards. So a lot of women will have normal widening during pregnancy. So. If you go by some of the older definitions of diastasis, they have diastasis towards the end of pregnancy, but there's nothing wrong with them. That's a normal adaptation. And actually by about eight to 12 weeks postpartum, that would probably be heading back towards normal. For about one third of women, unfortunately, there can be persistent, ongoing widening, and this can be quite um, impactful on their life because one, it can make them feel weak, and they might be a bit, they might be fearful and struggling about what sort of functional activity they can do, especially because they might see these this doming or bulging come from their abdomen when they try to do certain activities. So that can make them a bit fearful. But it's also a huge aesthetical and body image and um, and that's usually the driver as to why women end up seeking rehab actually and I think that's a really valid driver nobody wants to still look pregnant after they've had their baby or still be asked when their next baby's due when they're not pregnant it it really impacts their self-confidence self-esteem and therefore a lot of women do seek to try and improve it with um, exercise and activity but there's a lot of mixed information out there on the internet, and that's the problem, because it's a, it's still an area of research that's in its infancy. So while we're getting more research, we still don't understand fully a lot of the, I suppose, specifics around diastasis or the why behind them. And therefore, when you scroll Instagram, you're getting a lot of claims and posts about what to do and what not to do that are, supposed presented as fact, when yet we don't really know. And so that, in a nutshell, is what diastasis is.
0: Amazing. And I think that's the, you touched on something there, which I know is really reflected in some of your other research is that, you know, I think sometimes we get into a mindset that it's about one thing, it's about the mechanics of it, or, you know, that it's about the appearance of it, or the, you know, the, and getting very unidimensional about it. And this is a, you know, like so many things in pelvic health is, it's the, it's the psych, you know, the psychosocial side of it, it's the emotional side of it. But then, like you said, you you said something about like the fear and the confidence as well to, you know, to trust that your body can take that. And and then I think the, I remember years and years ago presenting on um, pelvic health and talking about diastasis happening between like, I think it was like, it's ages ago now, but it was like 66% up to 100% the different research. I was like, how on earth, like do you grow and hire baby and stretch that tissue? And it's it's really nice to hear that the, the conversation is evolving, but yet we still don't know. And I think the, for a lot of people, they come onto our courses and they want to know what is safe, what is okay to do and, you know, what they should or shouldn't do. And that can be really hard for people to then move forwards in their rehab without, you know, getting strangled by kind of rules of rehab. And I think that's where I've seen the conversation really start to evolve of kind of being less like, well, it's you know what is normal like is why are we using this word normal so much
1: exactly and because if, if you think of any other area of healthcare or anatomy or body we are all so unique and varied and we're not symmetrical either and mm-hmm. if we start to apply that context to diastasis firstly a uh, newer research is starting to challenge the previous definitions in terms of width of diastasis where we're starting to think like actually normative values for diastasis could go up to like 34 millimeters um, or higher if women have had a baby. So we're not expecting women after they've had a baby to have exactly the same interrectal distance. And interrectal distance isn't something to be scared about. And actually, what we know is that there are women who haven't had babies yet who will have a wider interrectal distance than their peers or colleagues at the gym. And you see this oftentimes in people who are quite fit and toned. And we see a lot of bodybuilding men. And you'll be able to see that their rectus abdominis muscles are Sitting wider apart, is there anything wrong with them? No, they're very fit, they're very strong. So, we have to stop pathologizing some normal adaptations and we have to empower women to get back to being as functional as they can. And yes, there's nothing wrong with a driver for rehab being the aesthetics of it, because I think women often be ashamed about that as well. And yet, you know, exercise and physical activity is really good for aesthetics in general. Like, people like to be physically active because they maybe get leaner and they have more muscle definition and you know it's a really positive thing and that I think can be applied to diastasis as well and I often find that the real double edged sword because women feel deconditioned with asses and they feel untoned mm. but yet because of all the fear and the mixed messages they probably scale back from normal functional activity so what happens when we scale back from stuff we stop using muscles we decondition um, we do lack some of that tone, and um, that's just, so it's it's trying to make sure that women understand that they're not broken mm. and that they're not fragile. Because another thing is that women often feel fragile because they think that tissue is so thin, and it's maybe they'll tear it or burst it. And what I would say it's a really strong adaptation. And one of the things that Anthony Lowe, an Australian physiotherapist, often says, and it got me thinking. And he's right. Some of the strongest architectural shapes in the world, for like bridges and buildings, are pyramids or um arches. Mm. And essentially that's what we're seeing in the ass is a really clever adaptation that this is actually the most robust way to manage that intra-abdominal pressure. So it's I think that's a really nice way of thinking about it and not fearing it so much. Yeah.
0: And it is the, you know, exactly what you're you're kind of describing there. It's like, you know, we we want the we want the really clear answer. We want the really clear mechanics. One so that we can give people the answer, but also so that we can you know we 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 can be confident in what we're saying but it's almost like what we've taken is a really beautifully complex system that is dynamic and changes and alters and we've tried to put it into like a step-by-step plan and I think there's there's some learning for us to to evolve with and you know I, you know of course we all want to kind of understand that but i think it's it's sometimes you know and that's what i'd encourage people if you if you're looking for that set answer if you're looking for the kind of the, the the absolute in it then you could really miss some real richness in the way that you rehab somebody in the way that you look at their their movements so you know especially our community being so you know you know movement based with our our pilates training um, you know it, there there is a, a a dynamic aspect to it so trying not to put it in those sort of you know neat straight lines kind of try and be on try and be comfortable with it being uh you know not as clear as you as you maybe want it to be so with with that in mind you know and this is you know questions we get a lot on particular anti and post-natal course and I think there's been more conversation around overactivity in the pelvic floor than there has been in our community but there's also been more conversation evolving now around the imbalances throughout the entire sort of deep core, as we'd refer to it in in, um, AAPPI. So can you give us um, a little bit of some of the factors that you think you would focus on in terms of assessing that difference between sort of pelvic floor and outer core, particularly where we're seeing patterns of overactivity in um, EO and IO, so internal and external obliques. And if you could talk our audience through what are the features you're looking for in terms of readiness for that progression, that that confidence that they can move forward in returning to sport? Um, particularly, I know that you've got your six R's and your whole system readiness sort of research as well.
1: Yeah. Um... Good question. I think something that I do see quite a lot, which you've touched on, is the overactivity of those um outer abdominal wall muscles. And I think this is nearly a coping strategy and it can often be quite subconscious to him and they're not aware they're doing it. But because the tummy maybe appears so pendular with death, that, the instinct is to nearly hold it in or suck it in so to speak and I'm actually in my head I keep telling myself I'm really anti against holding in tummies and things um, and I'm kind of a bit more like just let go and we're supposed to have actually even the most toned lean person we're a little round from the bottom up from the pubic bone because we've organs there we're not washboard flat and we do fluctuate throughout the day even when we don't have this in terms of digestion and how much our tummy swells and I sometimes think society has taken that normal aspect away from women, where we've got these expectations that other women are completely flat all day long, and um, and therefore we've bred an entire population of women who hold their tummy in. And every time I educate someone about letting it go, I realize I can let my tummy go, and I'm and anti- I'm anti holding my tummy in. And so if I'm subconsciously, if this is happening to me, it's happening to everyone, yeah. and it, it is a huge thing. So I think that that in itself can breed a little bit of you're using muscles more than they typically would have been used. Now all the muscles. In the abdominal wall are important they all work I suppose to in response to load and task depending on what, how much um, support is required but we start to change that when we start to hold our tummy in all the time because we create an element of stiffness in the abdominal wall it doesn't expand as much and we're very much relying on those outer abdominal wall muscles and that then means that we can become weaker in that deeper core as you referred to because kind of create another way of doing things and there's not I don't like pathologizing that either I don't like it's not that that's wrong it's not that that's bad or detrimental it's just that women have now limited themselves to one way of doing things it's nearly like that's their mo is like I'll hold my tummy in all day and this is how I function and most of my effort comes from these upper abdominal wall muscles and that's how they survive and that's grand they do manage to get up and be functional but it will limit their ability to do things. So it limits their progression, say in exercise classes. Maybe in Pilates, they find certain things difficult. They seem to can never get onto a certain exercise or movement, or maybe up the levels of it. And it could be the fact that they're, as I say, they're in that one MO instead of being able to have a variety of strategies. And I suppose I liken this to the topic of posture, which is often quite a debated topic in terms of what the research tells us and what we do in practice because the research tells us that there's no such thing as one good posture that there's no right posture no wrong posture but what it does us, tell us is that we should have a variety of postures that our body naturally chooses and selects from so, it shouldn't be one posture all day. And I think the same applies to how we use our abdominal wall muscles. So, sometimes with diaphragm, women get into that trap where they're just using one strategy and that's what they use all the time. It can often create overactivity in the abdominals and a little bit of tenderness and soreness. But because we know the abdominal wall, our diaphragm, and the pelvic floor are working a nice synergy together, if we're holding at the abdominal wall all the time what's that, what that going to do to the other sections? so we find that we don't breathe diaphragmatically anymore because we're more apical breathers because we're holding our abdominal wall in so we can't get that deeper breath and it means that our pelvic floor may actually be held in a state of like more activity as well and that can bring its own problems so it can bring pelvic floor dysfunction and actually pain with things like intercourse and mm-hmm. um, so is that what you were asking me emily
0: Yeah, I think it's like the, you know, the, how the, that whole system balances. And I guess I think, you know, we'll evolve a bit from what you're saying there about having just that one mechanism rather than having, um, I mean, that's the kind of point we're trying to get across is that, you know, in an ideal situation, somebody would be able to move in and out of different postures, positions, load, resistance, um, all of those things, different sort of breath rate, and still be able to kind of come back to an optimal place or come back home so to speak in terms of their movement so I guess it's sort of like what markers would you consider kind of show somebody's ready to progress? Like how would you get them out of that very singular pattern and what things are you looking for to, you know, cause I, I think I've just seen again, like you said, on um, you know, maybe a bit more, we don't want to pick on social media too much today, but like on social media of like, Oh, you're way too overactive in your obliques or you're, you know, you're bracing here or you're holding your tummy in and, and like say not pathologizing that and kind of getting that idea really of like what things do you look at when you're with a patient going right well they're doing this pattern how do I get them out of that very singular pattern and then what sort of are your markers then on that readiness for that abdominal loading like in the different stages of your rehab
1: yeah that's great question I actually find that you it's it's a lot about nearly neural reconnection or re- getting them to remap to those strategies they used to have that their brain has now forgot about and it can be done quite for some women it can be actually quite quickly done um, within a session for other women they'll have to go and practice so if I have someone in it's actually Pilates based exercises that I would start to test load with and so if I do think that even something as simple as pelvic a tilt I always start with it because if they thrust through the ribs and really overarch and achieve, that's nearly a cheek mechanism, there's nothing wrong with that. That is a strategy that achieves what I've asked them to do. Mm-hmm. But then I ask them, "Can you do that without thrusting through the ribs?" And they're sometimes like, "Oh my goodness, I have to think about that." They're like, "That's really," and I'm like, "Yeah, that's great. I'm going to get you doing it that way because it's not that they're weak. It's actually just more. uh they're not." it's it's easier their body's figured out an easier way to do something a more efficient way and so it, it prefers to thrust through the ribs but if we get them thinking about a different way you open up this other strategy the other thing i get them doing is diaphragmatic breathing because it's getting them that ability to let go and i think that's a nice neuromuscular reset um, to the entire diaphragm, abdominal wall, pelvic floor area. I think you just give it that nice reset. And that by the time they come back can make a huge difference. And um, so I would really channel them to make sure that they can, I either get a few of them to breathe 360 like their rib cage is an umbrella so that they can visualize it has to open in all planes. Um, or I'll get them thinking of belly breathing so that their belly passively rises. And so you want to see that and that automatically gets them letting go of those outer abdominal wall muscles. And you often see some of the markers I see when someone's particularly gripping at the upper abdominal wall is you often see a line or a crease just below the ribs. And you can think that that's just a crease from sitting the way the skin folds. And a lot of women think that's what it is. But it's actually usually that they're the way they grip with their obliques, because you actually can see when they talk, if they're top up as they talk or they do something, you can see that nearly that that line become deeper and um, and if you get them doing belly breathing and send them home doing that and maybe pelvic tilts without thrusting at the ribs and other similar exercises that are getting them to channel different strategies rather than the usual one they were using usually by the time you see them in the next review that line should be gone so it's a nice marker <laughs> to know that they are now using other strategies and not just existing in one way but the other thing is that I don't know how it fits with Pilates so you'll be able to tell me but I like to, I like to p- push people at the fence or the threshold of the load they're able to tolerate. So I'll make, increase the difficulty of exercises as I'm testing them. And they might be crook line exercises to begin with. Um, and when they're starting to find one a bit difficult, I'll make a call as to whether I'm telling them they're not doing that yet or whether I'm trying to get them to do it. Because sometimes I think if we just try the harder exercises, you eventually figure it out. It's that repetition of doing it. So I'm not... I don't like being too restrictive and I've got less restrictive as the years have went on, actually. And um, so I used to be a lot more st- restrictive and you had to achieve certain things before moving on. Now I'm like, but what are they doing in the rest of their day? There's no point in me restricting them doing, do you know what I mean? Like oblique sort of exercises or rotational exercises if they're rotating and picking up kids and rotating them. You know, so I try to make rehab look like their functional daily life as well.
0: Yeah, I think you, you're, I'm probably, I, will, I will always joke with my, my, the guys who come on my courses. And I'm probably one of the most frustrating presenters because I'll just kind of go, well, maybe. Well, let's have a look at it. Let's just explore. Let's just see. And I think the, you know, where you're what you're saying about, um, you know, that, I mean, I'm going to totally be looking way more for that line. And, you know, where you're saying it, I'm like, yeah, I do know what you're talking about. Absolutely. And I think the, I guess, you know, when I when I'm thinking about rehab, and I guess the way I'd explain it on the different courses is that, yeah, I totally agree. Sometimes we are overly cautious and we need to push, we need to take them up to that higher level of threshold of how do you know actually what is the top end what is their ceiling of performance and what happens in that you know are they are they maxing out on x number of reps are they maxing out on that load in a certain position but then I think particularly um, what I'm seeing um, more in my group settings at the moment is actually we're backing off from end range of motion. Let's say, for, say for example, thoracic rotation for a lot of people, I find um, they rotate and they get so far and because they feel like they should go into the big twist and feel the big rotation. They just end up extending and then they go more into that rib for us, more into that tilt and actually just allowing the body to explore a, a really kind of comfortable and um you know free and easy movement in like the middle of the range again changes people neurally changes that message it's that patterning and I like what you say about like that they've got this one movement pattern and I kind of see it as when you know you know you like you come and on a plane at night and you come in over the city and there's loads of lights the way I describe it to patients is like you've got parts of the city which the lights are down or they're off and we just need to go and switch on some more lights okay we're going to go and like go around and like poke a few things and switch the lights on. I Um, love
1: that that's (laughs) really good actually that's a really nice way of thinking about it because patients need something that makes it understandable to them that the penny drops are like oh that's why she's asking me to do it even though I can do that movement yeah because they don't really understand what it is that they're doing because you don't yourself if you, if you nearly need someone else to pick out like we all have compensatory strategies I've compensatory strategies but I'll not be aware of them until someone goes oh when you try to deadlift that you do this or something you know what I mean <laughs> do I okay <laughs> um but the other thing is, I suppose if we talk about diastasis, how might we limit things with diastasis? Because that's all is a million dollar question. But how do we progress people and know someone's ready for the load if they have diastasis? And oftentimes we go by the well, what happens when they do something. So how much domain is there? And we used to be really fearful of any sign of domain It was like, oh, no, scale back, scale back. But for a lot of women, they'll not be able to execute any activities without doming. So we can't just scale them back from life. Um, and the more we try to understand about doming, the less fearful we are of it like we mentioned earlier it's actually a really strong robust strategy so the way to know whether someone should be carrying out that level of exercise or load is to feel the domen. and I always um, like to think of it like a balloon so if you have a balloon that's blown up but you can squish it still like you can squeeze it and manipulate the shape of it it's not max capacity of its pressure it's you know it's okay I think that that's fine to keep going. Whereas if you feel the doming and it's really hard and pushing out against you and you can't manipulate the shape of it, I would say, right, can we make that exercise a little bit easier and see how they respond then? Mm. Or I do play about with things. I don't think there's any one prescription for uh, patients in terms of that they have to recruit their pelvic floor beforehand or they have to think of recruiting their deep core. I think you, kind of what you said, let's see, let's have a go and see what happens. So when they think about engaging the pelvic floor, what happens to that strategy in doming and can they achieve the task? What about if we just make sure that they really focus on not breath holding? Okay. And I give people different cues and find out what works for them, really, because oftentimes we get people to engage pelvic floor. And as I'm sure you know from Pilates classes, you know rightly that they're bracing everything. It's not just pelvic floor. Uh, whereas other women, you'll cue to do pelvic floor and absolutely nothing happens. and. So cues are very individual and it's it's interesting because I know we'll talk about it in a while but what we see from ultrasound and cues blows my mind because what people think they're doing and what they're doing is are two different things.
0: <laughs> so I've, I've never had um, anybody ultrasound scan me during my deep core activation and I, and there's part of me that's really interested, but I almost want to be myself first and go, <laughs> right, okay, now everybody else can see, just okay.
1: But you know what, even if it doesn't show what you think it was going to show, there's nothing wrong with that, because <laughs> whatever you are doing works for you, and there's nothing, you know, there's nothing compromising that, and that's the thing too, we will be a little bit individual, and like when I'm looking at people and when we see it doesn't matter whether you have the imaging or not you can see people who are really toned in certain areas depending on the type of activity they do so you know some people are really oblique toned and have lots of definition other people will have really toned rectus and you know so we're all so individual and it depends on the activities that we train for therefore how we fire muscles the brain will just pick whatever strategy works best and unless it's an issue and unless it's limiting you to one strategy i don't think it's an issue
0: i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you one really i want to move on to because we're talking there about ultrasound and that's definitely where we're going to go next but I just wonder, you know, we talked a little bit there about, you know, picking um, exercise that represents their function. Where, at what point there, because that kind of really raises a question for me of like, if we, you know, there's been a lot of talk, especially in physio world for years now, about functional exercise, make it functional, make it functional. Um, And actually, you know, again, does that is that putting us into a bit of a blind spot where we are kind of pushing purely into just what that person is very in a singular let's say example for a, a postnatal new mum where they're having to do lots of flexion and lifting bending twist you know are we then you know like because you were saying before about you know that if they have a very dominant pattern you know well, like then are you taking how do you take them off in to kind of balance that whole system or make that system more diverse and how it can work like how do you, how do you weigh that?
1: Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I know what you mean, because if we train for just those tasks that we think a new mom's going to be doing or we're ignoring all the extension strengthening and, you know, different aspects of it, I be honest, as we progress people, yes, I do function or I do focus on, right. How can I make rehab look like what she's going to be doing? Because she's just been through a huge physical and psychological transition into motherhood and we have to recondition those muscles because even if someone exercised right the way through pregnancy to the end they will be exercising at a reduced capacity to their potential and also they have biomechanical changes they were exercising in a different biomechanical body basically Mm -hmm. and so we're reconditioning those and i do focus on yes the type of activities they'll be doing but then what we're doing is like it always should be goal focused and orientated. and you're like, what does that person in front of me want to get back to? what's what makes them tick and what what do they enjoy because it, it's really important that exercise is the type of stuff they enjoy. What do they? Find difficult but they want to get stronger on and you'll find out then that they wanted they never were able to do like a pull-up or a deadlift or they you know they're scared of deadlifts because they're scared of hurting their back and you're like well let's work on that you know what I mean so I like to then focus on stuff and challenge them to do different things and get them back to the type of activity they want to get back to especially because a lot of women after having a baby think they'll never go back to running or team-based sport if they play football or something and you're just like no you can like we'll get you there and so you want to make them So I think that rehab does have to look diverse and it needs to be whole systems as you're talking about whole systems in terms of thinking about their entire body and how it works for them cardiovascularly, muscle strengthening wise, how it makes them feel psychologically and whole systems in terms of, yes, let's work all aspects of the body and not just get focused on either abdominal exercises or front loaded exercises. It has to work front, back, side, everything.
0: Yeah, I guess it's then having the the clarity in what you're trying to achieve with somebody, but they're confidence to explore and oh, yeah. just try and if it if it's rubbish and it doesn't work that's okay you
1: know i do a lot of um a lot of things that i find women can't do and actually i do it a lot with diastasis uh, rehab it's nearly a wee bit of a distraction exercise so here here i'll let you in in a little secret <laughs> a lot of times when i'm doing rehab and women obviously do we want to load and do abdominal loading exercises but i don't like everything becoming focused on the abdominals because I think that feeds into the idea of fear around diastasis and everything being about diastasis and their life and identity being about diastasis. So I always like to get women doing push up um because usually one they can't do a full push up that you know a full leg straight out push up and they're like, I've never been able to do one. I'm like, well we'll change that and they're like I, I would never I just would I'd never get the strength and I'm like you will but also because as they're progressing through training they will feel it in their shoulders and arms more than anywhere else and that'll be the focus and that'll be the limiting factor not their tummy. And um, so I I think it's a nice psychological shift but they also get stronger and as they start going oh my goodness I can do two reps of push-ups in a row it's a real empowering sort of exercise like wow and the next thing it's five reps and then can we get to 10 reps and I think it gives a real buzz but they will be working their abs and that as well and it's a real distraction way of working them it isn't all abs abs abs
0: yeah amazing okay we want all those secrets keep them coming <laughs> So let's let's go kind of rewind a bit. I know that we started talking a bit about um ultrasound there. So, you know, for lots of us listening to this, um, you know, probably don't have access to real-time ultrasound as part of their work with diastasis clients. Um, so how then, how has using ultrasound changed your perspective on diastasis? And, you know, particularly for us who don't have access to it, like what lessons can you teach us that we can take forward into our practice? Uh,
1: yeah. So ultrasound imaging has, oh, it's been a huge expansion to my clinical practice. I love it for both pelvic floor and abdominal wall stuff. And it gives me, eyes see, you know, it gives an, not a whole other element to our assessment. And a lot of what we do as physios is, you know, we get a lot of our physios and fitness professionals and anyone listening is we get a lot of our information from what the patient tells us. So what symptoms and how they feel and different things. And that gives us a bit of an idea about what's going on. And then we try to build on that because we might then feel the area, whether that's the tummy, whether that's pelvic floor, and we're starting to go get it, build on that picture. Ultrasound is just an addition to that that either helps confirm what I was thinking that I was hearing and feeling, and now am I seeing it? And so things with is that we can sometimes see are. We can confirm that they're overusing their abdominal wall muscles and brace. And you see that quite clearly in ultrasound, but you don't need the ultrasound. You already knew it. You could see it visually yourself. So the nerd in me just likes to confirm it. And it's really useful from a research point of view, but it's not necessary. The other thing we can do is we can take a more accurate measurement of the indirect eye distance. So yes, we can measure in finger width or with a tape measure without ultrasound. But I like to do both. I like to measure with my fingers and then to measure the ultrasound see does that match up to see how accurate my so I try to fine-tune my palpation and <laughs> um, doing this and it's easier to measure the interrectal distance at rest with ultrasound so I actually do um, when I'm palpating, look for the resting value. And how I do that, because a lot of people listening might be aware of feeling for diastasis when you do either a head lift or you come up into a bit of a sit up. And oftentimes we feel the rectus abdominus muscles come together around our fingers and we may have a finger width measurement. But it's unlikely that that's where the resting value of their muscles are because we know that the indirect distance reduces on head lift. So I get women doing the head lift and then slowly lower and down. So that's like an eccentric lower. And I look to uh, follow the rectus muscles to where they're going so you usually find they start to widen slowly but you can still feel them because there's muscle activity there and I add more fingers in and then th- you lose it just when they put their head on the bed because then their muscles um, relax and you don't feel it as well so I like to try and get an idea of the resting value with my fingers and then I confirm it in ultrasound. and usually it's in and around so what I would say is for anyone who is doing that with fingers you're probably spot on and accurate at doing it um, and I'm trying to think what else I like to use ultrasound for I if I think I like to use it to check that some Someone's doing pelvic floor. So, even if I'm not doing a pelvic floor assessment, in someone, you can do suprapubic ultrasound of the bladder and you can see whether the bladder base lifts. And it's a nice non invasive way of getting a bit of visual feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for teaching the patient, it can be quite use, uh, useful as a biofeedback. Um, medium to teach them either to let go of their abdominal wall muscles or to show them what happens when they breathe nice and diaphragmatically or to show them what happens when they say engage your pelvic floor and do a head lift versus just do a head lift you can show them the difference and give them some of the meaning behind the why you're asking them to do Mm -hmm. something in a certain way initially and so i love it that way but you absolutely do not need it and what it doesn't necessarily change what i do in practice it just adds a dimension to it i'm really
0: fascinated by where you're talking about i mean i think if i had hold of an ultrasound machine i'd probably get a bit competitive myself like how accurate am
1: I? oh yeah I, I that's me i i love that's the real kick in me and it's more and um, i suppose i've got more into doing that the more i've got into research because you'd be really accurate with research and so I use the ultrasound when I am measuring interact distance distance research but I always I always do a palpation first and feel and want to feel what's happening and um, but there's so much that we don't understand like you know I've spoke about this before at certain times in different presentations but I do think that there's an element of I think we find it hard to actually define where the in where the linea alba ends and the rectus sheets begin because if someone is deconditioned either because they've been pregnant so they haven't been doing that sit of action for so long so the rectus abdominis muscles are definitely going to decondition compared to their baseline or if they've been fearful to do any sort of sit-up movements and have been rolling onto the side for months and months maybe years and um, you're going to get reduced muscle bulk in those rectus muscles and what that means is that i often think of it like a sausage that has a wee bit of unfilled sausage filling where you can yep. see the flat bit at the end where you could have had more sausage meat in it and um, because If any, I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be able to resonate with the idea of having two women come to you with pretty similar presentations, similar width, maybe they've got a five finger width gap, similar depth of um what it felt like when you were palpating it, and they largely, even though we individualize rehab, they largely end up with similar rehab programs just the way they presented. They go home, you know, they both have committed to it, they're really eager, and one might come back and suddenly they're down to a two finger width gap, and the other comes back and they're feeling stronger, they're moving through better range of motion but they've got a five finger with gaps still. And you sometimes go, what is going on? that That's the case. So the more I've thought about it, we know that the linea alba doesn't adapt in that soon a time. So if I seen someone four weeks later, there's no way that the linea alba has reduced and um had any sort of mechanical changes to its tensile presentation it's more likely that there's been muscle adaptation we know that muscle can bulk within matters of weeks um, and so i often think it's that sausage filling filling out and you know then people go but she can tell an ultrasound but ultrasound imaging the linea alba appears really white and hyperechoic they talk about it, it's really white so too do the sheets around the rectus muscles so if those two if there's a wee bit of extra or loose sausage filling as i call it and those two ends meet each other because there's nothing in it they look like an extension of the linea alba so you know it's easy to mistake it in both um, ways so I definitely think that's an area of research to look into more and it may help explain why some women do get that rapid response where others don't and so my big thing is that you can't go wrong getting strong basically because the more we strengthen condition we're going to tap into any benefits we can get Um, and you might know that already because the two women who come in one of them you might know is pretty good at doing sort of practice, sort of exercises that you're doing. So you know that they're already using their muscles and stronger. Whereas the other participant could be weaker, and you send them away. And because they've started to now use muscles they haven't been using, they get that um, muscle adaptation. And um, mm. so I think it's really, really interesting.
0: Yeah, that's something because you kind of, I mean, apart from the fact you've just given us the catchphrase of the podcast of like, what was it you can't go wrong getting strong? I can't like,
1: even ta- I can't even claim that. I think that's Adam Macon's um, catchphrase. Uh, but you could uh, <laughs> in the words of Adam Macon's, you can't go wrong getting strong.
0: Okay. <laughs> I was gonna totally give that to you then. Arthur, <laughs> sure
1: he would he would have a lot to say about that, I sure <laughs> uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm
0: tread on those toes. It's fine. <laughs> um, but I I I think there's a few things I want to tease out a little bit there. Um, Let's talk first about where you're saying, how you've refined your palpation skills, um, particularly those people who are doing kind of the, the direct assessment of it just really intrigued me there, where you were saying about you know doing chin to chest, palpating, and then getting them to slowly release us, so seeing that eccentric control, which we know is gonna be more demanding um, from a power perspective. Like I just that I I, I want some patients to go and feel now, um, because what I want to know there is like going, well you know, is there a factor there as well? You know, it's one thing to be able to max out and brace, but what's the fine control? And, you know, is there a factor that you see there that actually, you know, some of the dysfunction can actually be in that fine tuning of releasing or even just on activation on that sort of initiation level?
1: Definitely. I think you're right because it, with DAS, it can tend to be all or nothing type approaches. So it is that go to end range really powerfully. Like they do it quite quickly and you just feel these muscles go and they feel really strong. You actually can feel the muscles come in. They can feel quite strong. Um, but then if you get them decentrically, they often, so a lot of women, particularly one of the exercises I use a lot in my clinic practice with diastasis is actually a Pilates, what I call a Pilates roll down. And um, so I get them starting actually in the sitting position with the knees uh, bent, feet flat on the ground and rolling back because that eccentric level, oftentimes they can only do maybe a third of the range, half the range. And the next thing they lose it, so they can't control the rest down and they certainly can't get back up. But as you get them working on that, they, their range increases. And then suddenly within a matter of weeks, they're like, oh, my goodness, I can just like roll up now like and I couldn't do that and we can all relate to people around different exercise classes who you see them having to get up and they have to nearly do a knee grab and a momentum to get up because women lose that ability to do a roll up roll down because of pregnancy because they weren't able to do it when they had this large bump and if we don't retrain that we don't have it so I'm big into restoring normal range of movement um, and the ability to do it and I love exercise so the roll down in particular and push-ups and I'm trying to think what other ones things that give women quite quick like progressions where they can see that they're getting stronger so their di- diastasis might not be changing yet but they know that they're not stuck in mm-hmm. this rehab black hole where nothing's changing they're like all right well something must be happening because now I can do 10 press-ups or now I can do the full range of rolling down and I couldn't do that before so that's changed and that's really empowering because you need those buy in because diastasis can be so frustrating. And it can be seen never ending. It's not a quick rehabit. You know, we tend to think of it a little bit more like tendon rehabilitation, which takes nine to twelve months. Um, and that's a long time, particularly when you want changes quicker. So it's all those wee windows of buy-in and progressions. And it's, I, my big thing would be to take the focus away from diastasis at times and not to become overly focused on really putting a microscope on Domen. So a little bit of Doman's fine and nearly take the fear away from it. And because the more women actually work out and progress through different things, the more they then start to see the changes and less Domen and their strategies start to, to diversify.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you're you know, we're already kind of evolving into some of the things, you know, I wanted to ask, you know, and i I really remember, um, you know, first coming into pelvic health and, you know, especially going around on the wards, you know, I was based at Leeds teaching hospitals and going around seeing, you know, all those new mums on the postnatal wards. And a lot of what we would go through with the leaflet, like back in the day when we handed out leaflets, I don't even know if we still hand out leaflets. We don't wear, where I work anymore. Um, But handing out this leaflet and a lot of the, the kind of those early stage rehab were very Pilates mat work based, um, you know, probably not the roll up and you know planks and press ups on day one but you know it really did reflect a lot of our you know our classical mat work one you know foundational work but you know and I'm I'm really aware that Pilates you know we can sometimes really get accused of being really singular in our focus or very static on our mats And and I guess we've already started talking about the kind of very mechanical sort of way that we've become more dynamic and more demanding and you know kind of being more confident to explore that range of rehab. I think what would be really nice, again, just to pull out a little bit here where you're talking about, I think particularly around your six hours and that whole system, but particularly the emotional side, the fear side, the the confidence and the belief that that their bodies can be loaded and and how strangling and suffocating that can be to stay persistent in a really... um, you know, restricted, what could feel like a really restricted, I have to be safe sort of program.
1: Yeah, that's really, really important. Because I guess I think the restrictive safe programs really disempower women. And they actually feed into that fear, because it's like one wrong move could undo all my work that I've done. And that's genuinely what people believe. They believe they could actually, by mistake, sit up out of bed without thinking about it and rip their tummy apart. And It's again, it's reinforcing that robustness that we have um, and that we're not going to undo and that. But in terms of the six hours, so we created a return to sport framework and it was, I suppose, with athletes in mind, but it was to give that idea of a phased return. So whether you're a recreational exerciser or an athlete, rehabilitation after having a baby should always be phased. And it's the same principles of return to sport after injury. It's like given the initial weeks of recovery and tissue healing and and getting then into reconditioning and and I think with the review stage in there is where you would like ideally see someone like a health professional, like a health or fitness professional who can look and see where you are in terms of your recovery and what individual needs you may have. The reconditioning is key, and particularly postpartum abdominal wall and pelvic floor reconditioning. I think has to be a focus for everyone. Even if people have a really straightforward delivery and think that they've no issues, um, they have had a period of change, and I think that we need to give honor honor that time frame and give them reconditioning. Um, and I often think, particularly with the pelvic floor, people under-train it, like they do a few week Kegel clenches and they think that they're doing it. Whereas sports medicine principles tend to be, we need to specific and we need to overload the area so like how many people actually do get fatigued by eight to 12 reps of pelvic floor a lot of times patients come in to me and go oh i can do 30 and i'm like oh right we're not we're not doing the max volume contraction then so it's getting women to really train the pelvic floor and um, and the return to any sort of sport whether that's return to a pilates class whether that's returning to running whether it's return to sport should always be a test sort of phase where you do it and see how do you feel how how did that make you feel was anything difficult? Was it difficult, just good difficult in the terms that you find it tough, but I actually enjoyed it? Was it difficult in that it flared some symptoms? Tell us about that. So that's where it needs to be bespoke. But if we think about the whole system element of it, it's not just about that woman's abdominal wall muscles or her pelvic floor muscles. It's also about how much sleep she's getting. And let's face it, the postpartum population are likely to be having to sleep. And how much sleep we get really impacts our exercise performance and ability because it, you know, it it affects us at a physiological level and that has huge ramifications so if someone feels like they're not performing well but they were doing better last week it could be the difference could be that you've had a few rough nights sleep and that your body actually needs prioritise recovery and rest and um, at this time scale and other things like energy levels so I'm big into postpartum women not excessively spending more energy than the intake so Again, if we think of the pressures in postpartum women, we often have pressures to lose our um, pregnancy-related weight gain to return to our prenatal body. And that can come with even unconscious sort of um, nutritional decisions where we don't eat as much or we skip meals. Particularly if you're a mom and you're sorting other people out, we tend to sort everyone else out and graze. And Mm. if we're then excessively jumping back into exercise and training and we're breastfeeding and we're doing X, Y and Z, are we now expending more energy than we're taking in, because that has actually medical implications in terms of it can affect our bone health and our menstrual health. So we do have to be thinking about women as a whole and not just getting bogged down into indirectly distance or pivot floor. And we have to think what's going on in that woman's life, even stress and like how much support she has at home. Because all those factors, particularly when it comes to exercise, if someone doesn't have some element of support, whether that's a partner or wider family, who are able to go, do you know what? You go and get your... 20 minutes or 30 minutes of exercise I look after the baby then it becomes something that's a real barrier and obstacle and and it becomes an element of stress where you have this guilt of I'm not having been able to do this and now I feel like I'm not being able to rehab and it there's so there's so many complexities that come into the postpartum population and it's just about looking at each individual and actually screening for some of these and and seeing what elements need address other than programming in terms of
0: Pilates or exercise yeah absolutely and I think that it's it kind of in some ways um kind of makes the rehab so much more well-rounded when you take this perspective um and I think it frees up a lot of some of the pressure where you've got like, I've got to push forwards 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 on these exercises and going well you know the how dynamic the the rehab is in terms of like saying like what's the quality of sleep and and, and like how, what what energy levels have they got available? What what capacity have they got right now? Then plonk that on top of where they are in their stages of healing and, you know, how many other children do they have at home? And I think this, you know, really resonates for me and sort of, you know, I describe it as the three Ds to my patient, the three Ds of pelvic health journey, no matter what it is, as you know, your, your symptoms will distress you. They will upset you. And that's why you're here. You'll feel disconnected and you'll feel dissatisfied. And it's a really... For me, the, the framework there really sat well because it, it kind of helped me go, well, you know, in each of those, how you know, each of those stages, like how do I how am I looking at those R's? And you know, are they getting, you know, let's like say they like you say they maybe today wasn't the day, maybe it wasn't unsuccessful or kind of, you know, less satisfactory kind of exploration of going back to running. Well, let's go back and look at those foundations. You know, we don't need to go back into distress mode. Yeah, it's okay. You know, your symptoms, you haven't made anything worse. You haven't sat up out of bed and made your diastasis worse. Maybe you just you know, you haven't drunk as much, so you're feeling a bit constipated, and that's why your tummy feels different. Or... Absolutely,
1: yeah. <laughs> And it's those rush. things too, and it's normalizing the fact that everyone's tummy wells. And, mm-hmm. and to be honest, too, what I like to normalize is that society having a baby changes the distensibility of our tummy in the sense that you can be lean and you can wake up first thing in the morning and think pretty flat, <laughs> okay. But as soon as like I know even myself, I've had four babies and. As soon as I have my first meal, I'll start to see my tummy changing in in terms of it just gets a bit more bloated. That's absolutely normal. But society tells us that that's not normal. And I have to often check myself with that a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think the message that we need to send out to our future generations is normalizing that and there was one time it wasn't that long after remember well actually it was long enough after I had my last baby and my kids you know they're at the stage where they're having wee conversations and so they're in the kitchen they were like um maybe one of them goes mommy why do you why do you still have a tummy but you don't have a baby in there anymore or do you have a baby in that tummy Thanks. I was like oh. I know you're kind of like oh and then um actually my wee boy Rory turned around and goes Noah. Uh, it doesn't just go away. She had a baby. It just doesn't go away straight away. And I was like, yes. So then I was like, this is really positive. And mm-hmm. particularly because it was the boys. And I was like, because the expectations of boys and what pressures or expectations they may have of women in the future is really important too, because they can be part of the uh, external factors of putting pressure on people if, if they have the wrong narrative. So I was like, this is really good. And I was like, yeah, exactly. I do have a tummy. And it does take a while but it's still
0: kind of like oh yeah (laughs) yeah I see you know teach our teach our sons as well as our daughters definitely I think there's I think there's a whole conversation to have there around you know normal posture normal movement normal not even body shape as in you know kind of what society would put us in in terms of clove size or you know body size or whatever in terms of you know pear or apple or whatever but then You know, the the whole thing of like our bodies are designed to change. They're designed to change, you know, every day, throughout the day. They're designed to, especially as women and, uh, you know, as as females, we're designed to change every day. And, you know, we're meant to be different. You know, this time next week, all of us are going to be at a different place in our cycle. Therefore, we're going to have a different version of our training, our sleep, our digestion and we're meant to change, you know, through puberty. And then, you know, that whole conversation of, well, we're, we're so embracing of, you know, puberty and it's like, oh, this amazing change that happens to you, but less, you know, celebratory and embracing of that change that happens through menopause and, and later in life as well. And, and I think that's, you know, I, you know, we've talked about so many different things here and so many different aspects of pelvic health, but I think that's, you know, something I'd really encourage people to think about. is like, well, you know, how are you trying to work and, you know, really explore and embrace all of those different changes, whether that's a day-to-day or, you know, different stage of your life versus, you know, trying to make it always come back to this set expectation of a box. And if you're trying to get somewhere of your rehab or you're trying to get somewhere with a patient or a client in terms of their, their movement, their exercise, whatever it is, and you're going up against a brick wall, you know, can you can you re-look at what it is you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to achieve something that actually honors their their rehab journey and their goals or is it some other expectation on their mechanics or some other expectation on their progress that you can yeah readdress but so Virginia, I'm sorry I'm really conscious that and um, you know it's the start of a new term and you have lots and lots of things to do so I'm not going to take up too much more of your time but I you know can you give us a little bit of a taste of then of, you know, what are the ways you're excited to see things developing? What conversations do you want to see coming up in the in the years and the up and coming projects that you can share with us as well?
1: Well, I'm really excited to be currently working on a, a project with uh, Spanish team physios, actually. And we're doing uh, we're developing an outcome measure for deaths because, as we know, there's no specific outcome measure for screening for diastasis or capturing it. And this, I often feel, is part of the problem why diastasis is sometimes underrecognized within the public health system. So you may go to a GP and they tell you, oh, that's nothing, that's normal, or they, they don't understand it, or it's just cosmetic. And it's very frustrating for women to hear this. So we had done a systematic review, and then we did the development stages of um, creating an outcome measure. And it's very much we're in the testing phase of it. We're validating the psychometric properties at the minute. Um, and it's existing in Spanish and English, actually, when it comes out. But it's called The Diaspora's Questionnaire, and it's very much a whole systems approach in terms of it's not just about, it's actually not about the interactive distance all. It's all about how they feel strength-wise, self-confidence, body image. It's all the things that came up in a systematic review, basically. So hopefully that will validate well, and then we'll have a tool to use in our practice, which then means that we start to have an outcome measure, and we have an objective measure that we can revisit, that's been validated, and retest and show that someone's either progressing or regressing. It also means that we can, I suppose, capture how impactful diastasis is for each individual. So even though a woman might have a three finger width separation, she may have more impact in her life than someone who has a six finger width separation, because it depends on each individual's how they view things, what they want to do, what what they believe about diastasis, their perception of it. That's all really, really good. And I hope that We get that out sooner rather than later. Um, I'm also involved in a study that's going to look at uh, the influence of social media in terms of diastasis posts, the information they give, and how they what what influence they have on exercise behaviours in women. So it's a mixed method study being led by an Italian physiotherapist as part of her PhD. Um, But we're going to do we're going to do some uh, quantitative analysis of Instagram posts, and we're then going to do some uh, interviews with women with diastasis about instagram posts and so we're going to see what that brings so it could be quite interesting because again like we've talked about several times today instagram can be really good but it can be really bad you know there's good posts there's bad posts and it's how do we filter that and have some sort of accountability for what's being posted
0: yeah Yeah, absolutely amazing well i i hope that I'm excited about those because if they're anything like the return to running guidelines, they, I'm sure they'll make a huge impact on how we get to work. And, you know, that's, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, so much of your research is that it really has been so helpful and impactful on a really practical level. It's a really, you know, tangible sort of way, you know, tangible information that we've had to be able to work more effectively. And, and and yeah, I, I love the conversations we're having as well about, you know seeing um rehab and support as multi-dimensional and moving away from the kind of the singular focus so i'm um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming in you know dipping into our community um how can our listeners learn more how can they work with you more how can what well, what what share us everything where well, how do we link with you
1: well um my website www.absolute.physio and it kind of houses everything that I do from podcasts, ones that I've been on, so I'll put this podcast on it and I'll link it from where you post it basically, um, and it's got the podcast that me and Emma co-host as well, um, but there's courses so I've, the Diasis Revolution courses. Um, one I'm really proud of. Um, it was created during the pandemic. And it, I suppose the thing that I really like about it is that it has a live case study. A lot of people probably already know Claire Black and seen her come across her on social media because she's publicly shared her story. But we have literally a fly on the wall insight into what we did with her. And it's not um, cherry picked very much. It's the good, the bad, the ugly, um, which I think is important because we all have days where people come in and, and rehab isn't linear. Um, and so sometimes people come in and they feel like they're further back than they were the last time and it's how do we then navigate that so it's not always the case I think that, that social media and just the glimpses that we get to see if people can make us always think that they always get every single patient better and it, you know it, we have this we can have this ideology and it's not the case so I think it's really important to highlight real world approaches so that's something I'm particularly proud of and then we've got the athletic female courses as you talked about and you can find them on my website or we've actually got a www.theathleticfemale.com um, link which you can get some um, previews and see what's in that course. And I've got some ebooks. I have an ebook on diaspora which is public facing. So for any patients, if you're looking to give them something to consolidate what you're telling them, that ebook might be of interest. And um if I don't think it's for anything else. Just Yeah, if anyone's interested in the journal or if anyone's even interested in submitting to the journal, get in contact with me. You can find me on Instagram at Absolute.Physio or you can email me to info at Absolute.Physio. So I'm always happy to have a conversation with anyone. Um, Yeah, and I'm going to talk to you about the journal in a moment too. Uh (laughs) Amazing. Oh, Grania, this has been an absolute pleasure.
0: Um, Thank you so much. And yeah, we we look forward to seeing all the stuff that you're going to be um, sharing with our community in the future. Thanks so
1: much. It's been an honour to be honest. Thank you.